Hi, welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre-loved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Minisports. Anything and everything for the classic mini since 1967. Uh, my guest this week is Lawrence Sayers Gillen, one of those guys who's uh, not just bought the t shirt, but probably sold the t shirt and actually designed the t shirt as well. He's raced, he's rallied, he's run a classic car auction site, a classic car business, imported lots of cars from the States. His dad is probably the person responsible, like a lot of us, uh, you know, as a dad, a granddad, an uncle, just somebody who gets you into the idea of collector cars, unusual cars. His dad was driving around South Wales in the 50s and 60s in Renaults and Skodas when everyone else had an Austin or a, a Morris or a Vauxhall or something like that. And um, he's raced, he's rallied, he's been a classic car dealer, he reckons he's owned about 50 Ford Mustangs. You realise an hour is a fraction of the time you'd need to get the full story, but it is a good hour. My guest this week on Speed Shop, Lawrence say is good. So let's start with the 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 many many cars that you've had. The first one. Well, my very first car was a set up and big four popular. And and uh, more that de- would have been probably made in the day, probably the year I was born. I should think. <laughs> we we have um. We have a tradition on the show. I've been going for years. I, I, people keep telling me, some say it's seven years, some say it's six years we've been doing this show, but there seems to be a tradition with guests of people venturing out onto the highway uh, at a point in their motoring career when they were far too young to have a licence or insurance or anything like that. Tells. I think that the best one we've got so far is one guest um, drove on the road at the age of five, although... He was in a car that was specially made for him. His father was quite a wealthy man, obviously. Right. He had this car, which was a replica Aston Martin. I mean, <laughs> the guy went on to race 1960s Ferraris and to run Europe's best-known aerobatic stunt team. So he had quite a life. Quite a but, life. But it right. started <laughs> driving on the road at the age... Because apparently the, the local where they lived, somewhere in, in... It might even have been um, Surbiton. It might have been the original suburb, Surbiton. They lived somewhere leafy just outside London. And the local Lions Club came to his father and said, would you sponsor the carnival? And he said, yes, but only if you let my son drive his little car at the head of the carnival. And they said, well, we can't possibly allow that. We can't allow a five-year-old to operate a motor vehicle down the main street. He said, well, I won't sponsor it then. And they went, OK, he can drive his little car. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can actually remember those Aston Martin um, cars, little toy cars. Well, not just toys. Lawrence, were... didn't, didn't Prince Charles have one, I seem to remember? No, wouldn't like them. I, I do remember the cars back in the day. Uh, my first experience driving, not on a road, was 10-year-old. I had a driving lesson from my father. Um, down near Landau, near the race circuit. Um, I can't remember what car that was, but that was my first experience of driving with a ten-year-old. I I nearly drove a car when I was ten, 
My father was um, cutting wood with a circular saw, and he nearly took his thumb off. <laughs> and so his solution to this was to use a staple gun with which he used to cover... He used it to staple um, fake leather to door cards. He used to, like, retrim a car, and he'd sort of do the door cards, and he had this big big industrial-type staple gun. He put a, sp- a couple of staples into the flap of flesh, wrapped a towel around it, and then said to my mother, right, I'm going to go to the hospital. <laughs> and, my mother said, and my mother said, you should call an ambulance, Alan. And he said, no, it'll take all day. He said, I'm going up there. And my mother said, Stephen, you go with him in case anything happens. And I was thinking, I'm 10 years old. What could I possibly do? And we set off in what I think was a Hillman Superminx in two-tone blue. And we set off for Berry General Hospital. And I could hear the drop, drop, drop of thick drops of blood coming off this towel that my father had wrapped around his hand. And I was thinking... Right, you push that stick, or else it won't go, and then you push on that pedal on the right, and that makes it go quicker. Because I was thinking, if I have to drive, I'm going to have to uh, pay attention to to what's going on. And I'd sat in all kinds of cars and started the engine and stuff like that, but fortunately, my dad made it to the hospital. It was only a couple of miles away, without passing out, and they sort of stitched him up, and he was all... Back another day. Oh, he's back at work the next day. Farming types, you see, Lawrence, the, 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 the injuries like that, that a lot of people would be like, ooh, I've got a couple of weeks off work. I think he had, like, a couple of hours off work, if, if I'm honest. He nearly took his thumb off. <laughs> yeah. So what happened to that Ford Popular? Did it uh, did it live to fight another day, or did you manage to stick it into a lamp post or put it in no, a ditch? No, no, I think it lived to fight. It, it ended up... Um, acquiring a Union Jack bonnet and a side exhaust, not a lot of point, and a little side valve engine. But, you know, those are the things you did back in the the sixties. Well, that was that was tuning, wasn't it? That was <laughs> customizing. Yeah, in the in its rawest uh, form, I suppose. So, what came after the Ford Popular? Oh. Um, well, prior to the Ford Popular, um, a friend and I used to steal my father's. Um, Renault Dauphine out the garage, put chalk marks around the tyres and take it from where we live, which is in Barrie in South Wales, as in you know, Barrie Island, and so drive I... it to Porth Cole and places. No, neither, neither of us had a licence. Um, so that was our only illegal experience of driving driving cars underage. So was, was Porth Cole like... Um, so you were in Barrie and I was in Berry, and... Uh... Porth Call, was that like a, a bit of a seaside resort? Or yeah, Porth yeah. Call was a seaside resort. With, you know, now it's got sort of Treco Bay with six million caravans on it. Oh, wow. But, um, but it had a big concert hall and stuff. And, you know, but, so that was, those are the sort of naughty things we did. And we put chalk back around the tyres so we could put it back in exactly the same place. <laughs> <laughs> what about the what about the odometer? What about the the extra oh, miles? I, I never noticed my dad was a he, funny enough. He drove a he, he was he drove a fire engine. He was a fire officer, and, uh, but never let him in the car. Why? He was a terrible driver. <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, he never really noticed. I told him about it years later, and uh, he'd never known. He'd never known. I've got a bloke who, um, you can't talk to him when you're in the car with him and he's driving. Um, and I love to talk. 
I mean, that's, you know, anybody who listens to this show for the last, we can't decide whether it's six or seven years, but it's been years, will know I love to talk. But if I ever get in a car with this guy, I just clam up because he gets distracted. It's like he can't he can't walk and chew gum at the same time. He can't... They said they were at George W. Bush, didn't they? Can't, can't walk and chew gum. This guy can't talk and drive. He can do one or, one or the other, but he can't do both. So if he starts talking to you, you think, we are awfully close to those parked cars, or, you know, bad things happen. So I just get in, sit there, and pointedly stare out of the window in the opposite direction from him in case he tries to engage me in conversation. Because it's terrifying. And the thing about people like that is... They don't know that they're bad drivers, do they? Well, nobody knows they're a bad driver. I suppose we're all bad drivers. At some depends what you, can, what you refer to as a bad driver, I suppose. Well, the, um, the papers would think somebody who goes fast, don't they? They say, oh, you know, this guy did this. I mean, there was a chap up the other day um, in the papers. Well, he was up in court, and he was coming out of court. And he'd been clocked at over 200 miles an hour on the road. And they were saying, oh, yeah, this is terrible, and this is, you know, this is, a, this is a dreadful crime. And, yeah, I was in Germany, and I'd been to BMW to pick up one of their new bikes and got onto the Autobahn, and I was thinking, is this one of the restricted ones that only does 155, or will it go quicker? And so I whacked it up to 155, put the adjustable screen in the lowest position and tucked in as tight as I could, thinking, and I was just thinking... Yeah, it must be restricted. I'm only doing 155. When I heard a siren, and I thought, oh, no, oh, no. And the police pulled me over. Weird German, white and green police. Always odd, isn't it? White and green. White and green police car. So they pulled me over, and uh, straight in English, they knew, straight, they knew exactly who I was. And they'd already spoken to BMW, and they'd said, oh, British journalist, he's borrowed the bike for testing. So they pulled me over, and the, the copper said, um, uh, excuse me, can I see your papers? <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I was like, oh, <laughs> I felt like Gordon Jackson and Dickie Attenborough in The Great Escape, I thought, <laughs> they want me papers. And we were stood there and, I, and he, he said to me, you cannot go at that speed in the outside lane because, and as he was saying that, a 911 with an A8 Audi right up his chuff came past at about 170, 175 miles an hour. And as the roar of those two cars died, he said, because of this. Because, <laughs> of course, it was unrestricted. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what we... That bloke, who I say, I think he was from Kent, and he was in a German car, he was in an Audi. He's looking at doing serious jail time for doing over 200 miles an hour. Yeah, but but in, the other amazing thing is, you look at most of the autobahns, there are only two lanes. <laughs> you, you, you know, you really get hold-ups, and they've got massive speed limits. I know a lot, a lot of the modern ones have, have gone up to three lanes, but a lot of the motorway system in Germany is just two lanes. But um, there you go. It's an, it's an attitude, I think. So after you'd, after you'd um, done the going up to Porth Call, looking for girls, I should imagine, in a Renault Dauphine, was a Renault Dauphine considered to be sort of quite exotic? No, it's Otty, just Otty. a car my father had parked in the garage. Um, I, funny enough, uh, it nearly got written off by an accident with a push bike. Because um, they were made of, of well, a push bike, tin foil. Yeah, yeah, a, tin, a push bike drove into the side of it on a very steep hill in Barry, and um, nearly brought the car off, of course, from its damage. Because they were made of paper thin steel. 
probably my next car I can remember um, that time of my life would have been, and funny enough, even though we had terrible experience with the family run of Dauphine, I bought a Dauphine Gordini, pure luxury, four, you know, four gears and more power. Wow. Three speeds. Gordini. So was, it, was this a thing in South Wales, the, um, the sort of the strict... I would have thought Britain at that time was kind of dominated by... Austin and Morris and Ford and Vauxhall was was a was the sight of a French car, especially something as exotic as a Gordini Dauphine. Was that not? Were you not considered to be a bit loose and a bit sort of you know? Did you did you smoke those? Did you smoke those smelly cigarettes and sort of you know wear dark glasses and stuff like that? Oh, no, I can remember smoking yeah um, and uh, Russian black, you know, with the gold tip because it was considered to be cool then. But uh, but no, our first family car was um, um, I think I said to you my piece I wrote to you when I replied to you was a, a 1950s Mark One Ford console and I negotiated the purchase of that one it was twelve I think it was two hundred pounds. Uh, that was a so, lot of money back then, wasn't it? Probably, um, but that was um, I can't remember when I was twelve, so 1949, twelve. So that takes us on a bit. Um, yeah, twelve year old. But um that was our first family car. But then we my father had strange tastes. He liked um Skoda Octavias and things. Um When you say uh, the Skoda Octavia, most people aren't gonna realise that you mean the very sort of very elegant and pretty, I think, the original Octavia. Yeah, I, not I know, a bad looking thing for I, I know, the time. Well, yeah. Nice bit of design, Skoda yeah, but yeah, we I'm talking about the original Octavia back in the sixties. Um, but not an unpleasant-looking car. There was always a um, there was always a teacher at school who was like that, wasn't there? Who was a bit unusual, and he sort of he was he was usually musical or or scientific, and every all the other teachers would just have your standard issue, as I say, Austin or a Ford or a Vauxhall or a Morris or something like that. And then he'd ball up in like a Messerschmitt bubble car, or like <laughs> yeah. there, there was always one guy like that, wasn't there? Who just couldn't, well, who just extreme, couldn't you know, conform. Alvis TD twenty one or something, you know. So, we yeah. had a teacher had an Alvis TD twenty one drop it. So. Yeah, my uh, my grandfather was an Alvis man. He liked he liked Jaguars, Alvis, and Rileys. My grandfather. And he, he took to Triumphs in later life. He had uh, a Vitesse convertible. And then he bought, weirdly, having had the Vitesse convertible, he bought a 2500 PI, which, of course, stood for, not for private investigations. Pure inject, petrol injection. Petrol yeah. injection, which, which was quite exotic when that car came out, wasn't it? Petrol but injection, really? Yeah. I mean, that that 2.5 PI, especially in a state form, was a fabulous car. If you keep it, it was an estate. He had he had the estate, dark blue, yeah. navy blue. Yeah. So, so yeah, but those are the cars of our. Well, I mean, I'm I'm cracking on. You know, seventy three in the next month. But um, I still see myself as a as a twenty six year old big magnet personally, but uh, not shared by many people. Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> so no, as a um, as a young man. Once the family cars had been left behind, what was the first car that you bought that was that was a real, if I can use that slightly outmoded, well, not slightly outmoded, very outmoded, outmoded uh, term, babe magnet? What was the first motor you had that that proved to be a bit of a babe magnet? Probably Mark II Jaguar, 3.8 manual overdrive Mark II. 
And was this in the days when those things could be acquired relatively cheaply? Oh, yeah, yeah, they were, they were, they were no money. The funny thing is now that I've talked as many 3.8 manual overdrive Mark IIs on the road that never left the factory. <laughs> well, I was who, who was talking to me about his Mark II the other day, and he said uh, he got it because Morse, Inspector Morse, had one. That was a horrible but, thing. That was a horrible car. It was a Daimler, wasn't it? No, it was a Jaguar. They yeah. never ever did one. It was a little 2.4. But the car, it was pushed on and off most sets. Uh, but I mean, it made, what, £53,000 at auction or something? Did it? Just because of it was what it was. Um, I'll tell you what, uh, makes, no, my, horrible what makes my heart sink when I see a Dell Boy Reliant. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I just see it because I just, it's never the right model of Reliant. The, the one that was used, as far as I'm aware, in Only Fools and Horses, voted the most popular British sitcom of all time, and the scene where he falls through the bar, the greatest thing that's yeah, ever yeah, been, yeah. On, been on British television. Their van was a Reliant Regal Supervan 2, as far as I'm aware. And when you see somebody who's painted one up like that, it's never a Reliant Regal Supervan no, about 2. About your, your, your better knowledge. Funny enough, an, an older business acquaintance of mine who died, um, his funeral, the funeral... Cortage was was led by his um, pit trotters independent trading replica van, complete with blow up dolls coming in the back, which I thought was a great turn for someone that just passed away, quite young. But it's obviously what he wanted to do. Well, there's there's a chap who goes around now with um, a motorbike and sidecar, and the sidecar is um, can take a coffin. I was going to say it's a hearse. But yeah, I've touched, yeah, I've seen there's an advert featuring that, and there's some form of advert for insurance, life insurance. Oh, yeah. I, th- I, I try to avoid television. I find it um, makes my head hurt. Yeah, yeah, you, you and me both, most of the, you know, hours and hours and hours of total and utter rubbish. But there you go. There's well, the I, thing I, that's worth watching. Well, I, mentioned, I went to see a movie the other day, and uh, there were some great cars in it. It was called House of Gucci. And it was about all the shenanigans that... What a what a story that is. I did, a real-life story. They were all, like, bumping each other off and getting each other put in jail and all sorts of stuff, all sorts of carry-on. But the cars and, at the beginning, his Lambretta motor scooter. Fantastic. And he gets a... He graduates from a Lambretta to a Lamborghini. But And, and in some ways, his, his motoring journey is the story of how he got seduced from being... This is Maurizio, who's the central character. He was, he was going to go off and be a human rights lawyer, but then he got seduced by the money and the glamour and the women and the Lamborghinis, and then it all starts to go horribly wrong. wrong. But, you know, it, I, and I was talking to somebody about that, so it's quite long. And he said, oh, how long is it? And I said, oh, it's, it's over two hours. He said, oh, well, I couldn't commit that amount of time. I said, hold on a minute, you watch telly, don't you? And he said, yeah. I said, well, you'll watch. I said, have you seen Breaking Bad? He said, yeah, the whole thing, yeah. Well, that's 64 hours of your life. 64 hours of your Ugh, life. Wouldn't I? Sorry, I'd never seen it, so... But you are, well, neither have I. Neither have I. I, I. I'm aware of it, and I know who plays the lead in it, and I know it's about... A, well, I know what it's about, but when you work out how much time you have to invest in these things, I'm like, I'm going to be dead soon. I, I'm, I haven't got time for stuff. I've got time for a movie, and, I can, and of course, if, if uh, to be honest with... I am... 
not terrible. I won't say terrible because I, I don't think it's terrible, but other people think it is. I will walk out of the cinema, no problem. If the movie hasn't grabbed me by 45, 50 minutes, I just walk out. And people say, how can you do that? You've paid your money. I said, yeah, I've paid my money. And yeah, I take my time. choice. And I take my choice because I've paid my money. And my choice is to leave and go and do something else yeah. because the movie isn't, isn't yeah. engaging. Time is more important. Time is, isn't it? You realise that. Um, but no, cars, I suppose, <laughs> my, my history in cars is, it's like everyone, I suppose, it's more it's tied into what you could afford at the time. Well, it, but coming back to that Jag, you could afford it at the time because we do talk about this, and I'm, I, I kind of missed it. I missed that period, but I relive it by reading old, old car magazines and looking at the classifieds. There was a time when cars which are now held up as icons were just thought of as old rubbish and, and were sold for tiny amounts of money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, E-type Jags you can buy for, you know, five, six hundred pounds. And, you know, no, they're just, well, I mean, gone stark, staring mad. There's a lot, a lot of stuff. But uh, Was it any good, that Mark II? Because, again, there's a car that's held up, as I say, as an icon, really, as a, of, of style and performance. And, you know, of course, it starred in a lot of movies. It was both the, the cop car and the getaway car in yeah. a lot, lot of yeah. British gangster movies and on the television. But were they actually any good? Yeah, when you consider it's the, the, the time, um, the performance of a Mark II Jag for its day was phenomenal. Um, especially, you know, everyone raised about a three eight or over three four. I would challenge any anybody take the badging off, <laughs> let them drive both cars to tell you which one was a three eight, which one was a three four. But everyone raised about the three eight because it's a higher revving engine and slightly more powerful. Um, but for its time, yeah, it was a beautiful-looking car. I mean, it's never dated. The design's never dated. Uh, very much like the MGB design, you know, it's just, it's just dateless. Um, and performance was phenomenal. But if you wanted to buy, if you wanted a car that was more comfortable and handled better, you'd probably buy an S-Type. But the S-Type hasn't got the performance cachet of the, the Mark II. Well, they built the S for the American market, didn't they, because... Apparently, when the Mark II arrived in the States and they tried to get golf clubs in the back, it was like, what's going on here? Yeah, the ride wasn't there. And, you know, yeah. Because, um, of course, I mean, the S-Type's got the independent rear end as the Mark, the Mark one Mark II doesn't have. Well, I've told this uh, story many times, um, and I'm going to briefly tell it again, uh, because my, as I said, my grandfather, John Moore, not my, John Berry, was uh, John Berry, the farmer, would just drive a tractor or an Austin, an old pre-war Austin 16 or one, Morris 8 or something like that. He had no interest really in vehicles. They were just tools to him. Right, did the job. My mother's father was, was a car man. He was, he was very much an enthusiast and a collector of books and magazines and all sorts of paraphernalia and of cars. And uh, a Jaguar man, a Riley man, an Elvis man, you know, born in 1900, both my grandfathers, both Victorians, the last year of uh, Victoria's... Uh, of rain, both Victorians and both both men who you would describe as Victorians. And I was talking to my mother one day and said, of course, grandfather never would have bought a foreign car. And she said, well, you say that, but he almost did. And she told me this story, which I've retold of how she went with him on the train to the Earl's Court Motor Show because he'd gone down there to have a look at a, uh, a Citroen, the Citroen DS. Well, yeah. Because he'd heard great things yeah, yeah. about it and he drove it. And she said he, she knew 
how impressed he was because of how quiet he was after he drove it. And on the train on the way back, she said she couldn't resist it. She said he was reading his newspaper and he's, he always read the Times. And she said, Father, will, will we be having the French car? He said, and he pulled his newspaper down and went, we should be having a Jaguar. <laughs> but, but she could tell that he'd been scared by how, or, yeah, scared by how good the Citroën, how good the Citroën DS was. And now it, that car, I think, is quite rightly held up as one of the greatest car designs of all oh, yeah. time. Oh, yeah, I mean, 1956. I mean, when that came on the road in 56, it's one of the cars I've... I've I've owned hundreds of cars over the years, hundreds of all different types. I've never owned a DS, and I would love to own a DS, but I, whether I get around to it or not, I don't know. But a wonderful. I mean, they are quirky. I mean, the little button on the floor for a brake, you know. But, um, yeah, phenomenal piece of design, engineering. But if you think of the one that went before it, I mean... Um, the, the major car. I mean, oh, the know, traction avant. Yeah, again, you know, first front wheel drive car back in the forties. I mean, phenomenal piece of kit. And to this day, if you get a right hand drive one, you know, built in Slough, I mean, they're a very usual car, um, performance wise, handling wise. Probably not the most comfortable thing in the world with the seats they're built with. But... Oh, you're joking! You are joking! I've got, I've got a CX. And my daily is a Mark 1 C5 with a hydroactive 3 suspension. And that Mark 1 C5, the one that looks like it melted, the, ones that, the one that looks, looks like they left the original design out in the sun and it melted. And then, and then nobody noticed that they actually ended up making the car. Voted the ugliest car of all time, somebody told me, the Mark 1 C5. But mine with a 2.2 turbo diesel and hydroactive 3, three I defy anyone to find a more comfortable six-speed manual gearbox. Get it in six. I was on the M6 going out to the motorcycle show. People say, why are we going to the motorcycle show in a car? Because it's the middle of bloody winter. It's f- literally freezing cold. I'm not riding 220 miles on the motorway, boring motorway riding on a motorbike. I went down in the Citroen. And because the speed restrictions on our motorways, let's not get onto that, said 60 miles an hour, I set the cruise at 60 in six, the six of the six gears. And it said to me that on, on a full tank, I had 746 miles of driving at that speed, which is phenomenal, really. Yes, I don't question that. I'm just referring to the comfort of a, the, of a traction advanced seating, which was not the most thing, comfortable thing in the world. What's the, most the uncom- world. what's the most uncomfortable car you've owned, Lawrence? Owned... God, that's a good there question. must be one where you're thinking, God Almighty, that thing. Every every mile in it was like being dragged down the staircase at, at, a, at a fishing no, port. Not really, I mean, uh, I wrote something the other day for somebody who said that the trouble is um, most people who own a classic car to become ex-classic car owners because they ne- the the dream is never met by reality. Um, it's only people like you and I that, because um, you're a motorcyclist, um, so you have to be perverse to start with. <laughs> um, I'll tell you um, what makes a big. Di- you're right, but I'll tell you what makes a huge difference. I've noticed with with any car, one of the biggest differences a flat windscreen. You drive a car that's got a flat windscreen, and I noticed I was I was in the street in Manchester the other day, and I saw the new Jeep Wrangler, and it looked uh, it looked a really if you like that sort of thing, it looked great. It looked tough. It looked 
it looked macho, it looked aggressive, it looked great. But in the 90s, I owned a few of those uh, Jeep Wranglers, and that flat windscreen, if you went over 50 miles an hour, by God, the noise, you couldn't hear yourself think, never mind hear the radio. And I just thought, are they still going with a flat with a flat windscreen? Yes, they've still got a flat windscreen. You you realise that it was little changes in car de- in car design and the way that cars were little changes along the road when it went to a monocoque construction yeah, yeah, when yeah, they could yeah. make the curved glass curved windscreen glass and stuff like that. All, all those when they went from cross plies to radials, when they went from drums to discs. I think the biggest change in cars. Um, in the history of internal combustion-powered personal transportation vehicles, which is a long way of saying car, is probably, see if you agree with me, probably the mid-60s to the mid-70s. If you drove a car from the mid-60s, then drove a car from the mid-70s, you'd see a world of, a, a regular, well, yeah, a regular would, car, you you'd see a world again, of difference. I don't know, if, if, if you went from... If you only go from decade to decade, yeah, possibly true. But if you drive something like your old big 16 or something from the 1940s and then got into a 1960s car, again, there was a huge difference. Yeah, the war, the war of course, was a huge... Uh, war always is. It's You know, I wouldn't be the first person to say this, and it is a, it's become a bit of a cliche to say, oh, yeah, war advances all kinds of technology. I mean, look at... I was in the RAF Museum in Hendon. I'd never been, and I'd been down to um, the Ace Cafe in North London. Have you been there? No, I've never made the Ace Cafe. Near, near Wembley Stadium. It's a great place. It is owned by a couple of mates of mine. Well, owned. They run the place. It's a fantastic place. It's been there for 25 years in its current incarnation. Been there a lot longer yeah, in, yeah, in, in, in history. Years, but we went down to something that was cancelled because of COVID and all that sort of stuff. So we'd come all the way down from Manchester. We'd come to do a, London to do a couple of things. And my pal said, have you ever been to the RAF Museum? I said, no. So where is it? He said, it's at Hendon just up the road from here. So off we went. And the thing that struck me, was the, of all the play? what an amazing place, by the way, the RF Museum. They've got some phenomenal stuff in there. But the biggest impression, there were two things that made an impression on me. The jet-powered Heinkel plane that's made out of wood, which was the last throw of the dice for the Luftwaffe, right at the end of the war. Heinkel made a a jet-powered plane, but they were so low on resources, and Germany was just about to crap out, really, weren't they? Um, it's made out of wood, <laughs> but it's a jet. And then the other thing that in, that really struck me was the English Electric Lightning, because if you look at the plane that it 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 went uh, that it that it replaced, yeah, yeah, it wasn't just twice as fast; it was three times as fast. That's right, That's three crazy. times as fast as the plane that it replaced. I mean, still a fast plane. I mean, what a phenomenal! And that was the kind of I don't know what you call it, but the you know the the nitrous oxide injection, if you will, of, of of the war and of the pace of change that the war forced upon science and engineering and design and, and invention. Um, there again, you can take something like the mosquito that nobody wanted and proved to be the fastest or faster than a Spitfire. <laughs> My, made, of, made of wood. My physics teacher, Mr. Isherwood, was a mosquito pilot. Would and he, he was saying that back in the 80s when I was at grammar school. He was saying, it's he, uh, bloody spitfires and hurricanes. He said, they couldn't live with my mozzie. 
He said, we used to fly past them flicking of the Vs, them boys, the, the Brill Cream boys. Like but again, you know, just built of wood, you know, built by guys that were building uh, furniture he, before the war. He told us, Mr Isherwood, my physics teacher, he told us that he, as a pilot of a Mosquito, he believed that they'd made them deliberately difficult to bail out of to stop pilots from bailing out. You know, because he like he, he th- this was just his theory. I'm not saying that they were. This was my old physics master, who'd been a mosquito pilot. And the other thing I remember he could do was he was a pipe smoker and he used his thumb to push the tobacco down in his pipe. And as a consequence, his thumb was like a blackened stump, right. <laughs> stump. and he could strike a match on his thumb. And when you're 14, that's really impressive, isn't it? When you see somebody do that, you get a match because, of course, this is how old I am now, Lawrence. He would smoke his pipe in class while we were doing our work. <laughs> Can you imagine now if you went to school? There was a man in a tweed jacket smoking a pipe. And then, you know, we'd hang around to hear his, his stories about flying mosquitoes during water. Yeah, the un, an underrated aircraft very much so, wasn't it? Well, probably by the masses, but I think it was, it was highly rated by those that knew what it, what it was capable of. It was... It was Probably the most effective, although the Spitfire obviously gets all the glory, because it was so beautiful. The Spitfire is a beautiful design, isn't it? It really is. It's just like an E-Type. There are very few things that you look at and you think, oh, you can't improve on that. Because you look at a lot of cars and you think, yeah, that's kind of almost there, but that's just not quite right. And you know, I mean, I was out in a 65 MGB the other day. Yeah, I would never mind. Well, no, but I think for what it was, I mean, my pal said, oh, a, a convertible Austin Cambridge. And I thought, how harsh, it's terrible. No, 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 it's really pretty. As I said earlier on, the, the design of the MGB is timeless. So pretty. So, so successful. Because, but in some ways, an unexceptional car, and that's why it was so successful. It's all very well. Everybody getting all excited and going on about Lamborghini Muras and, and, you know, and Maserati this and Aston Martin that. Those cars, you might as well have said, I want to drive a moon buggy on the moon, the average person. I, I tell the story, people say to me, oh, um, what sort of bikes did you have growing up? And I say, uh, what, b- bicycles? No motorbikes. We didn't have motorbikes. My father worked at the paper mill and had four children. I think he was buying us motorbikes. Yeah. We had hand-me-down bicycles. I was lucky. I was the eldest. So I, if anybody was going to get bought the bike new, it was me. And then my brother rode it, and then my sisters. You know, it was kind of like that. He was... This all this talk and it and, and that's the thing with the historic car world and the collector car world or whatever we want to call it. There's all this big talk about all these exotic cars, but for most yeah, for most the, most people, an MGB that was that was that was doable. That was that achievable. Was my next car after my after my two MGB GT. What colour was it? It was blaze. And the interior. The, can you remember? Black, black vinyl. Black. Because it was a 1966. Hmm. LYH260D. There you go. I got an orange one recently, and I took it to Man- one of Manchester's shortest streets, Motor Street. So-called because I worked out and did a bit of research. I should have worked it out before. It was the first place that motor cars were sold and that you could buy petrol and that was oh, really? of, had a forecourt and that. And when you look at the 
topography, if you will, of that space now, even though it's changed a lot, you think, oh, yeah, it's kind of on a... It's where two roads diverge, and it's it's in the split, so you would have pulled into the pumps to get your petrol in, and the cars would have been behind and all that sort of stuff. But there's a famous photograph of perhaps the greatest football player of all time. I don't know if you are a football man. Not that much of a football man myself, but I am when it comes to this guy. Mr. George Best of Northern Ireland and Manchester United. And he stood... Waste of talent, my way way of thinking. But there you go. He stood outside his boutique, Victoriana, which is on um, Motor Street... And he stood next to his orange MGBGT. So I took this orange one. It was a bit of an old banger, to be honest. This one that I got, parked it in exactly... I worked out where exactly the same place was. Parked it there, and then got someone to take a picture of me, stood where Georgie Best um, was standing. Because there's another connection. Ireland did a building that was formerly a pub called the Brown Cow next to Salford Railway Station, which is at the bottom of Bridge Street. You could almost see it from where he had his boutique. And apparently, the the Brown Cow, which is a railway hotel, old-school railway hotel, where people would stay before taking the train in the morning, whatever. Apparently, that's where uh, George used to entertain, um, entertain the ladies. And, in fact, tried to persuade Jermaine Greer, the noted feminist. Now, there's a couple of people you wouldn't put to, You wouldn't necessarily put those put two together. together. No, tried not. to persuade her to accompany him back to the Brown Cow because the forward-thinking... Um, proprietor of that establishment who had a song written about him called johnny the fox by the band thin lizzy the bloke who owned that place had given george a set of keys to the building so that he could uh, avail himself of the bed- bedroom facilities <laughs> but when somebody said, i was reading this and it said he, he was chatting up Gr- jermaine greer and wanted to know she, he, she wanted to go back to the brown cow for a drink and maybe a bit of a bit of what's the face and i was thinking did that actually happen did these people and apparently they met at granada television which was just around the corner on key street in manchester but this is it when i you, you know that that mg i mean they made what was it they made they made about a million of them didn't they in, in nearly 20 years, the, the yeah, roads... Yeah, the roads started off in the early... Um, you know, Three-bearing crank car right back in the early 60s. And they stayed in production until the what, early 80s. So, you know... Yeah, well, they brought, they brought it back um, with, that, with the V8. Yeah, but, uh, never a good idea. But, <laughs> but they're really... I mean, like, it, the same as each, I mean... The American market, because it was the American market, was the biggest market, ruined the E-type... If you've seen the E-Type Series 3 with those big rubber bumpers stuck on the front and rear of the bonnet and the boot, I mean, and of course they ruined MGB by increasing the ride height by an inch and a half. So, and putting, you know, deformable bumpers on them. So, yeah. So, you know. But mm. then again, it was the biggest market for these things. Well, the Americans, I mean, let's, I, I'm really, I'm the last, well, I think both of us are the last people that are going to be anti-American, but... They passed all sorts of laws that were kind of, oh yeah, we're doing this for safety, or oh yeah, we're doing this for whatever, and it was you just. Mr. Nader, we have missed. Ralph Nader has a lot for people to be thankful for, but he did also cause a lot of problems. Like you know, convertibles weren't produced for many years, and cars were just ruined because of various pieces of legislation came in because not safe at any speed. Was it his booklet he wrote? Um, about the Corvair. Yeah, the Corvair, which was kind of lift-off oversteer, wasn't it? It was like if you went in too hot and the natural instinct of... It, it, it's funny because 
you're, you're sort of you're motoring you Chris Harris type with driving gloves and the opposite lock boys that you, you'd read a lot of in Evo and Octane and all that, and they'd be, they'd be waxing lyrical about, you know, getting a bit of oppo on, on the sort of uh, going to mid-Wales and thrashing these cars around in all this, which apparently is uh, the police take a very, very dim view of these days. I believe they confiscated some cars recently. Yeah, especially if, if you're talking about the, the cheap guns of North Wales. He's not exactly car-friendly. Well, there are, no, but there were, there were a couple of pilots. This is only a couple of weeks ago. A couple of pilots who drove down from Scotland in their Porsches and went to what they call the Evo Triangle, which is, I think, around Barla. You know those roads around yeah, there? Yeah, And then they thrash these cars around. But here's the, here's the thing, and here's the, here's the modern thing. They filmed themselves doing it and then uploaded it to the internet. I don't even know why the police turn up for work. The, the, the police can work from home. They can just go, oh, yeah, there, there they are. <laughs> <laughs> right, what are they called? Okay, there are their registration numbers. Hello. Yeah, is that Mr. Uh, Mr. I've got a fast Porsche and I drove to another country through another country so that I could thrash it and then uploaded this stuff to the internet? Yeah, we, we'd, uh, we'd like to see you in court. <laughs> but I mean, I like this modern stuff and I, I mean, I raced you know, for a long time, raced down rallies. I mean, I can't say I'm not one of these, you know, opposite lot of sideways boys. But I recently bought, because I've always thought I'd like one, because I've had earlier ones, I've had other Aston Martins back in the day, the old V8s from, you know, the 70s. So I bought um, a DB7 Vantage. Truly awful car. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Terrible thing. Honestly, I, I hated it. It was uncomfortable. It, wasn't, it didn't make any noise. It wasn't that fast. Um, I didn't keep it very long. Um... I sold it. Um, it was just truly awful. I mean, I've driven my car history goes say goes back, you know, many, many, many years. Aston Martins, you name it, I probably owned it. But I just thought it was just a truly horrible car. Um, terrible ride, and just nothing. Spe- it was like driving an expensive Ford, which of course what it is really, because it was in the days of Ford. When they own Jaguar and Aston Martin, because yeah. all the electrics, all the terminals, and all they're all Jaguar. Yeah, but the, before the um, before the DB7, the Aston Martin. I'm trying to think of which, which it was the one that came before that. The one was it Zagato had a go at it, and, it, and they produced a very odd looking car. Yeah, there was, but that was based on the VH in the 1980s. You know, the, um, Basically, the Aston Martin V8, which came out in late 60s, 68, 69, with the Tadek Marak designed V8. Um, all the six, came out all with the six cylinder in it. Yeah, so all that the six. went on right up until, Christ, 1987, 88, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. My old boss had one. It was fire engine red uh, with a white cream, not white, cream and red piped interior. Storm and he loved red, that would be. And he loved it, but he didn't like driving. He had three great cars, and he liked cars, and he liked looking at cars, and he liked owning them, but he didn't really like driving them. So as his sort of assistant, I got to drive all three. One was a BMW 750iL with a V12, great car. Uh, there was a Range Rover, which I wasn't that keen on, because uh, it was a bit like being at sea, being in charge of that thing. Yeah. And even if I borrowed it, I resented, he, he expected me to put fuel in it, and it just... He just, there was no reason that that vehicle should have consumed that much fuel. The Aston Martin and the BMW didn't use as much fuel as that damn thing, and they went a lot, lot faster. 
But it was it must have been a strange sight seeing this fire engine red V eight Vantage with the blanked out grill and oh, the drill. Yeah, I mean, of course, I mean back in the early eighties that um, was reckoned to be the fastest accelerating car, production yeah. car in the world. In the world, yeah. Nord sixty and something yeah. like that. No, no, it's positively slow. <laughs> yeah. Five point three I think I think it was competing with the nine um, eleven turbo. Yeah, but, but we it, talk about fuel. I bought uh, back in the seventies. I, I bought a, a DBS V eight, a seventy two, one of the very, very few fuel injected ones they built. And I drove to Wales and back to my home and back so from the New Forest to Wales and back. And this was when petrol was not even a pound a gallon, never mind a pound a litre. And we used fifty six pounds worth of petrol. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the thirstiest vehicle that I've ever had. Go on, ask me. I mean, I, that, it was back and forth to the main deal, and I got invited to the factory because it wasn't very old. I mean, it was only three or four years old for the injected version, but I still loved the car when it was on song. And it's probably one of the fastest it ever built with that injection system. Of course, then they went over to Weber's because they couldn't get the injection system right. Most people that I know that race... Um, as you have, aren't that interested in road cars? Did did racing not? I remember turning up to something and Damon Hill was there and he turned. I remember he turned up in um, a Renault Safran estate car that had kind of child seats and like McDonald's wrappers and you know it was kind of like I said who's in that? And I said Damon Hill. That's Damon Hill. And he went you what? And it was yeah, like I remember talking to to an XF1 driver, not Damon Hill, but I said, what's with the? Why don't why don't F1 drivers have interest in road cars. He said, because, Steve, when you've driven an F1 car, everything else, everything else feels like a school bus with flat tyres. He's so, probably right. I, mean, I like classics mainly. I mean, I don't do much in modern. So the most modern car I've ever bought and sold very quickly was that DB7 <laughs> But, I mean, the, there again, the DB7 did save Aston Martin. It did. But, no, I mean, we, we can't I'm be too rude. Man. That's we, right, I remind, but I... I'm not anymore because it just got so expensive. I sold a GT350 replica earlier this year, and I wish I hadn't because, as you probably gathered, I've always got a few cars dotted about because it's yeah. in the blood. But I can't replace it. The Mustang prices have just gone stratospheric. Um, and I wish I hadn't sold it now, but there you go. I've got a picture in front of me on my computer of a, a Jensen CV8 I had. Back in the day, and I've always wanted a Jensen CV8, having seen it in you know, the Baron. The television program, The Baron. The Baron, yeah, wow. And um, I sold it because it needed so much money spent on it. And I've never been wealthy um, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I sold it, and then prices went mad. <laughs> so even experts, so-called experts, um, get it wrong. Yeah, Paul of mine was looking for a Mustang um, for kind of road rallying, you know. And he noticed that the price had just gone a bit crazy. So what he's done, he's, he's bought um, a similar car of a similar age um, with the same sort of equipment. It's all set up for road rally, and it's got all of the the seats and the roll cage and all of the instruments that you need are already with the car. And it's a Datsun 240Z, and it wasn't cheap. No, it but, wouldn't be, because the 240Z got mad as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the Mustang, I don't think as The Mustang is such... Um, it's it's so useful as a classic, isn't it? Because it qualifies for so many different kinds. But the of... fastback doesn't. The fastback was never homologated for touring car racing. It was only ever homologated for for sports car racing, which is why all the guys you see racing for Mustangs in this country have all got coupes. Yeah. What they call the hardtop coupe. Yeah, I had a '67 um, GT 
uh, a long time ago. Not that, well, not that long ago. I've had two Mustangs in my life, 67 GT, uh, which came to me with a very interesting registration. And I phoned a pal. I know nothing about registration numbers or how. I've never been really interested in that sort of thing, but I thought, this has got to be worth money uh, because it was two letters and one digit. And I thought, that's got to be worth money. And I phoned a pal. And he offered me £25,000 straight away. It, 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 he cut me off in the sentence. <laughs> I said, I've got a car, and the only registration... I've got a green logbook, and the registration is RG2 or something like that. And he, it, it was something like that. And he went, I'll give you £25,000. And then we both started laughing. I said, I assume that it's worth a lot more than that. And he went, he said, yeah, why do you think I just blurted out, I'll give you £25,000? Yeah, and I went through the whole process with Swansea, and this very nice Welsh lady called me and said... Mr. Barry, you just, oh, no, I better not do the voice, because that's where you're from. So they said, um, and I don't do it very well either. Uh, I end up sounding like I'm from the Indian subcontinent. But anyway, um, she said... Not just accent. Not dissimilar. She said, just a few questions, Mr. Barry, before we issue you with your V5C. And I thought, this is great. I've only paid a few thousand pounds for the car, and I'm going to get a registration number with it that's worth many times that. And then she said, oh, hold on a minute, Mr. Barry. Oh, I've just noticed that number's been reallocated. Thank you. Have a nice day. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, oh no. Uh, and then the other, the other, uh, the other Mustang I had is probably the most hated Mustang of them all. Not it, apart from the new one, that new electric SUV that oh. they've done. That's got that's got everyone frothing at the mouth. <laughs> Everyone over 45 is frothing at the mouth. Young people are going, oh, that's quite nice, I think. People are online going, I will never go into a Ford showroom. I will never buy a Ford product again as long as I live. Ludicrous, but there you go. But Progress. The one that I had was the previously the most hated Mustang, which, of course, is the Mustang 2. Oh, yeah, disgusting looking. <laughs> but... Um, this one had been sold new. Get this, Lawrence. This one had been sold new from a showroom in the UK in 1977 or 76 or 77, something like that, uh, with a 5-litre V8 and about 130 horsepower. How did they manage to get so little power from a 5-litre V8? Well, what did they do? That's the difference between us and the Americans. But I, I love, uh, and I've owned a few, the... Um Lincoln Continental, Clapdoor, you know, 1961 to 19, well, 1964, really, before they got ugly. Um, but the Clapdoor, it's a suicide door. Mm. Seven litre V8. But, I mean, it's, it's got less than 300 big horsepower. <laughs> and the thing weighs 5,000 pounds. You don't feel any bumps. So, of course, did you ever get to go underneath that car? Because I can't think of a lift in the UK that would be able to... Oh, be no... yeah, I've had them on ramps. You know. did I've, you have to say... I've had a beautiful red one, um, but it wouldn't fit my garage. Which is why it went eventually, but I loved it. Took it a good bit a few times, you know. I had a red one, I had a white one before that. So I just love the design. It's not oh, the yeah. car I love, it's just a wonderful piece of design. I had the Corgi model with, the with as you say, the clap doors, the suicide doors white cream with a red interior red plastic i remember thinking look at you know when you're a kid growing up in in berry or barry you know either of us either of us yeah you never you never saw 
vehicles like that. You never saw Lincoln Continental smoking through this. If you saw a Renault Dauphine, you were, well, you saw a Renault Dauphine all the time. You were, you were lucky. I've told the story before. There were two interesting cars that I used to regularly see. Mr. Pierce of the Surgeon and Aston Martin DB5. Uh, uh, and then there was a guy called Mr. Monkhouse who ran an insurance. I think he had two or three of these places, one in Bolton, one in... And he had a ready type. And that was it. Everybody else had an Austin, a Morris, a Vauxhall Viva, a Land Crab, you know, uh, a Ford Escort. <laughs> that's, that's what people drove. But the collector car market and the whole Goodwood, the Death Star that is Goodwood... <laughs> The glamorous Death Star that is Goodwood. And I mean that in a good way, Goodwood. I really do. Um, it's kind of creating this idea that the, the the old car landscape was populated by Mustangs and Muras and E-types and stuff. And it wasn't. It was no, it just wasn't. mainly loads and loads of really quite... Ordinary cars. In mundane. fact, very mundane is exactly. Thank you, Lawrence. That's exactly the word that I instead of blathering on that I sh- that I should have reached. But you for. know, but same token. You see, now you see Austin A30s and A35s racing in saloon car racing. You know, you see the Austin A40. You know, hugely competitive in racing. Austin A40. Why? I mean, the first hatchback, really. No Why? one gives it that that accolade, but it is. You go, you go to Goodwood. And and there are Alphas and Mark II Jags and and big Yankee muscle cars, and then this, these little Austins just bugger off into the distance. What's going on? Well, <laughs> because <laughs> because back in the day, that's not what happened. No, because they weren't as quick then. They didn't have the tire technology. Um, if you look at these guys, uh, what the two? What's it? Uh, got a new one. I was racing. Um, father and son. BTCC guys. The, uh, the Minshaws, those guys? No, no, it's a BTC driver, what's his name? Anyway, him and his dad, um, they prepare, they've got a whole workshop now where they prepare Cortinas and Austin A40s and things. Right. And they're spending tens of thousands of pounds on these cars. You know. mm. But it's providing fantastic entertainment, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, fabulous. But it does just seem a bit odd when you see an alpha puffing and blowing trying to keep up with a little Austin that just, that just, that just goes... I suppose as a Brit, I should feel patriotic, but there's something in me that, that thinks, well, that isn't right, because, you know, it should be a Cortina or it's a Lotus Cortina or it should be an Alfa Romeo. It should not be that little shopping car. Quite innovative as it was, like you say, the first hatchback, really. Um, I don't think it should be winning those races. Sorry. Well, it's, I say because they're, spe- they're just spending so much money preparing them. If you look at the guys back in the day that were racing the Mark One Jags and things and Zephyrs, they didn't. They weren't prepared to that degree. Yeah, they, they could drive them back and forth to the circuit. And is is another thing, um, Goodwood and historic race preparation and races people. Can you set the cars up so they cock a wheel like they used to back in the day? Because that was one of the most exciting things in racing ever, wasn't it? When the no, all- <laughs> it depends what you're driving, really. I had a, a I had a, a race long dice back in the eighties with John Atkins and him, him and his AC Cobra. Uh, me and my modified Series Three V12 Jaguar. It was in a thing called the Intermark Aftermark. Oh, Intermark, Intermark was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was behind me, and we would nip and tuck through the whole race. And he came and commented to me afterwards that I kept, I was lifting wheels going through the corners. I said, well, yeah, I would do. Yeah, it's a, it's a very rigid saloon car. You know, it's not like your little AC Cobra. If you've ever driven an AC Cobra, they flex like the, the mm-hmm. flexy thing on a flexy day. Mm. You know, the different things like an E-type, an E-type will flex. But if you've got a, you know, a rigid, you know, unitary construction 
um, saloon car, which is made for, for racing. It's like the modern touring cars. They do exactly the same. They lift wheels everywhere. What's your favourite series out of all the ones that you've watched or competed in? What, what do you think was the most enjoyable for you as a racer? Oh, I love the. I used to love the Aston Martin Norris Club Intermark because that was. Um, so that was. Aston I used Martin, to watch Intermark. So that was. was Ferrari. Yeah, Jaguar. Ferrari's Jaguar. Well, we used to. Me and my pals, we used to know Rob Beer, and so. Oh we, yeah, Rob Beer. Well, he did Malcolm yeah. Hamilton's car. He was the man, was it? Yeah. Well, so, so I got to know Malcolm, right? And and um, I, when they opened uh, a big kart racing place here in Manchester. They they threw quite a lot of money at the opening of it. It's right next door to Manchester United's football ground, and uh, I thought I can get a ring girl. I'll get Malcolm to come. <laughs> so Malcolm came, and he was on our team. But it was interesting. What he was doing was we were doing quite well. Jordan had, a, had not the drivers, but like the mechanics and I think a test driver and stuff like that. It was Jordan and, and my little team that were that looked like we were going to win this inaugural sort yeah, of... Yeah, Andrew Jordan and his father, yeah, yeah, that's it. Right, so, but Malcolm, when Malcolm was jumping in the car, because he wasn't the most svelte of racing no, drivers. Like <laughs> so Malcolm was struggling into the cart, but the, what his technique was in the car was exactly the same as it was in, I think, the Rob, that, that E-type, the Rob yeah, Beer yeah, E-type. the fastest E-type in the world. Wasn't that the, yeah, the fastest and most powerful E-type in the world. So Malcolm's technique in a car was the same. What he'd do is get in really tight behind somebody, and then on the, what, what amounted to a straight, he'd pull out from behind and put the hammer down. But guess what? <laughs> <laughs> I said to him when he came and I said... Malcolm, you know when you, like, pull out in the Rob Beer, the fastest E-type in the world, and put the hammer down? <laughs> Normally that works, but it ain't going to work here in a golf cart, mate. Stop doing it. <laughs> I said, you've got to intimidate people. Put them in a wall. <laughs> yeah, but the better way is quite good, because you get all these eight stone blokes trying to pass you, and they hit you, and they just stop. What a because glorious, what a glorious thing it was! I mean, you probably didn't enjoy it because you know it was it was uh, Aston Martins that were supposed to win in there, but that eats the rub. That that eats like what a yeah, machine! A, a what a beast! You had uh, David Ellis had a modified Aston Martin V8, and he was eventually banned um, because they said it was outside the spirit of the series. But it was all Aston Martin. Mm. Um, oh, well, yeah, yeah, but when somebody gets too fast, it ruins. It ruins. I mean. Have you been involved from the very start of a championship? Have you ever done that, Lawrence, in your career? Only sort of Mickey Mouse Jaguar stuff. Yeah, well, you know, Jaguar driver yeah, stuff. but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the point. My point would be that was that we. I worked for a magazine that was exclusively Harley Davidson, and we got involved at the start of a championship, a, a motorcycle racing championship that was exclusively Harley Davidsons, and it, they, everybody said, "Oh, this is going to be a bit of fun. We're all going to have fun." And what it turned into after a couple of years is some of us are going to start throwing so much money and we're going to start bending the rules and we're, yeah, going, to, yeah. and we're going to start employing ex-MotoGP riders or world superbike riders. What started out as a bit of fun turned into, and I wonder if it's inevitable. Do you think it's inevitable? It just turned ultra-competitive and people started bending the rules left, right and centre. Well... The trouble is that there's no... Everyone asks you a question, what's the cheap form of motorsport? There is no cheap form of motorsport. No matter what you're racing, it's all expensive. And the trouble is money talks. I can remember... I won't be mentioning mention the name, but he owned a big um, string of chemists around the country. Um, a Jaguar man. He had a complete fleet of Jaguar cars. Um, that man turned up at Pembrey Circuit and basically took up the whole paddock with his collection of cars. And... 
wondered why everyone was getting a bit miffed. Because he said a club meeting. He said that Jaguar would drive a club on a Jaguar enthusiast club meeting. I can't remember mm. which. Um, which becomes ridiculous. It's same with the AMOC Intermark. You get people turning up in their helicopter and their Tampicum with six cars in the back. And you'd have, cl- you'd have done Aston Martin or his club meeting. So, you know, you can't compete against that sort of money. So, you know, um, you do your best. So what about the, what about the current car landscape? I I think it's I mean you, as you said you're interested in is mainly in classics and, and so is mine. You know I find most modern cars a bit of a turn off. I, I see them for what they are, which is uh, a machine to transport you from A to B and nothing that you're going to really engage with in the same way that you would with you know I don't know your something old that, something that takes it requires your attention to get it from A to B. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, well, I just I just had a trip a few weeks ago. We shipped my partner's 1971 Alfa Romeo Spider Series Two, uh, the Camtail uh, Two Liter. Yeah, yeah. We shipped it to from Liverpool. I drove it to Liverpool, put it on a boat, and then about two weeks later, we met up with it in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and drove to Toronto. Oh, lovely! But just in th- well, yeah. But the problem was, what was supposed to be a week was three days turned into three days because when we got to customs and i've told this story the people at the customs in halifax nova scotia were delightful they were helpful they were pleasant they were professional but they were just nonplussed by this car that had just turned up apparently it's not something that people really do they wanted to check it out and they took four days to do it and so they reduced what had been a week to drive two thousand kilometers to three days in a 50-year-old car. But it was an adventure. It, yeah, turned, yeah. it turned into... We made our plane in Toronto because people said, oh, well, you know... It's, I said, no, it was genuine. We'd, we'd booked everything. We'd booked our flight because I'd had to fly to Vancouver to meet my partner and then we flew almost all the way back <laughs> to, to Halifax after another week because the car took its time getting across the Atlantic. Um, we flew to Halifax and then... We thought we'd have a week, so we thought, oh, we'll go to Montreal, we'll go to Quebec, we'll have a lovely time, we'll stay here, we'll look at this, we'll look at that. My partner is Canadian, meet some friends in Toronto, etc. In the end, it was just a race against the clock. And it was one of those things where I was listening to the engine all the time we were driving. You you, You know when you do that, I was listening and I was watching the dials i was watching the oil pressure i was watching the water temperature i was watching the fuel gauge which halfway through the trip turned into a geiger counter and just started just started wildly flapping all over the place that's the old experience of buying a classic car at auction which is 300 miles away and you've got to drive it home Uh, well but this is what makes memories and i was i was with my son uh, who's 24 yeah he said remembering his son's age uh, my son's 24 and we were having a drink together and somebody had black currants in their drink and straight away I knew what he was going to say I knew what he was going to say he said hey dad do you remember and I thought I know what he's going to say do you remember that time we were all going to Blackpool in the Alpha and he meant the GTV6 that I had yeah yeah when we were all... wicked car great car do you remember that G... when we were going to Blackpool we were going to Blackpool but we were doing it how you shouldn't do it, which is on a bank holiday, like you guys would have gone off to Porth Call, looking looking for girls in that Renault, and we we decided as a family to go to Blackpool on a bank holiday. So of course, as we got nearer to, I think Britain's busiest seaside resort, there was an immense queue of traffic, and this slightly elderly Alfa Romeo 
objected to being sat in this traffic and started to overheat. So my solution, um, having pulled over and allowed it to cool down, was to liberate the two litres of pre-prepared Ribena (laughs) from the picnic hamper and pour it into the guts of the radiator, which meant we made it to the the next garage where I could top up with water. But for the next half hour... The pungent aroma of hot black currant <laughs> was, uh, it was amazing. But so, 20 years later, he'd remembered it. But, it, and, but it, it, it was a memory of, you know, of having a bit of an adventure where it looked like, oh, we're going to have to, we, our day's ruined. We're not going to get to the seaside. No, hold on a minute. Dad's improvising with the black currant like that and put it Maybe. in the radiator. You'd never get. That memory, a lot of people, and I think you've already said this, I think we, people who love old cars, old motorbikes, old planes, whatever, are different, but we accept that they are going to break, fail, overheat, manifest electrical problems that that just mystify the brightest of minds. They're going to do things that cause trouble, and that's not for everybody. In fact, it's only for a small number of people. It is. This is a problem now with the modern life. Um, because because I, had, I was in the auction, classic car auction business for many years until I sold up, um, and I've always been around classics. But now it's it's. I think it's virtually impossible to sell a classic car to a to a person uh, because now you can just take it back. <laughs> yeah. I've just bought this fifty-year-old car and there's something wrong with it. So I want the money back, um, which to me is just ludicrous. Did you think it was, as somebody who's been in that business for a long time, did you look at the rise of sort of online auctions and think, why are so many people buying cars that they've never seen? Why are people well, I, promising I, I, to pay I, money I, for I've cars they've never seen? I've been doing that for 35, 40 years, yeah. because I'd buy cars in America, which I've never seen. Yeah, but by you were doing that, surely, Lawrence, by building up a relationship. I know guys that do that, a friend of pal of mine, Nick, well, I won't yeah. name him, but he does that. But it's it's only with people who he's built up a relationship where multiple cars have changed hands, sometimes over decades, not just years, but decades, and a relationship has been established within which there is an understanding that if there's a problem, it can be resolved, people don't need to fall out, a bit of money can go back, a bit of money can go forward, and, and an adjustment can be made. But when it's a total, when it's a total stranger... Are you not just rolling the dice? Why don't you just go down to the casino and, you know, put it all on Red 18 or whatever? It's you sp- You're sending however many thousand dollars to the States for a car you've only seen some pictures of on the internet. I mean, yeah, you know... It's just, yeah, but, but this is a ludicrous situation now. I mean, I won't mention any names, but a friend of mine's got a big classic car dealership. And life's become a nightmare because now you, you can take your car back. Um but they will then go and buy the same car at auction with no comeback whatsoever. <laughs> so, you know, you say, where's the mentality? Yeah. Um, I, to me, because apparently now in Germany, you could, it's, it, they're trying to make it 12 months for a wow. 50, 60-year-old classic car what? that you can take back. Uh, and it's just ludicrous. We did me, that. We, me, I, I, I first got into the... Because, of course, in Britain, it, that's what people are doing with Marks and Spencers, wouldn't they? Do you remember? Do you remember when if, if you got... If, if a certain sort of person... I'm not saying I ever did it, but I, I knew people who I worked with, and they went, oh, yeah, I've got a funeral on Friday, so I've got, I've got to take the day off. Um, I, I, I'm going to go to Marks and Spencers at lunchtime and get a suit. The revolving suit. Get a suit. <laughs> 
and then I'll take him back on Friday. So if, go on Wednesday in your lunch hour, buy a black suit, and then wear it to the funeral on the Thursday, and then take it back in your lunch hour on the Friday. That was a that was a standard issue thing. But now you're saying that's happening with cars. People are oh, just yeah, because if you can if you can claim that the, the vehicle had a fault when you bought it, even though it's a 50, 60, 70 year old car, you have to give the money back. That's crazy. But that's the, that's the modern way. Lawrence, we bet about we... taking things back. That takes you back to uh, rallying days when we used to do course work car rallying. The, the, the Welsh, uh, we used to hire cars from places like Godfrey Davis. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. To of use course. As, as course cars. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like the Hertz renter races in the states, oh, yeah, isn't yeah, it? We should do. It. We just have to respray the the sills. <laughs> You had to respray the cells before you could take them back. Before we could take them back. Do you know what? We have barely scratched the surface. You've got to come back on. We've been talking for over an hour. You've got to come back on and tell us more about you, all the cars. Love and you. Because we barely talked about the racing and the rallying and all that sort of stuff. And I'm sure people would find that absolutely fascinating. But thanks for coming on the show. This oh, is the problem. i it down to wherever you need. Well, no, that's fine. You know, it'll be absolutely fine. But you must agree to come back on. And this next time, what you've got to do is you've got to send me a list of some of the most interesting cars, and then we can talk about those, and you can tell people those stories. But you've made some—I think you made some really interesting points about the way the, se- the the collector car scene is now. And and I think it was interesting to bring it out that there's this whole industry and social media and all that sort of stuff in promoting this weird idea of what the past was really like and it was full of all these cars and it no. wasn't it wasn't it was just no, full it of it was but full no, of nonsense. you're right about these on, online auctions and they're really having it off one of a better expression well i just really I, are. I i've just knocked back a car that i bought on e- I, I bought the car on ebay and the guy seemed like a really nice guy and i was dealing with him and then i tried to get the car collected and he said i've got covid i'm self-isolating i said fine okay he said it'll be 10 days at least before I can see your guy who's going to collect the car. And the guy who's going to collect the car is a trusted friend of mine. He's in the classic car business. And what he does for me is he'll say, Steve, I'm going down south, I'm going up north. Have you got anything that needs moving, collecting? And he'll do me a cheapie. Yeah. So he was doing me a cheapie on the return. He got, there and he, call- he got there and he called me and he said, this car won't start. I said, right, okay. I said, can you, can you try to start it? He said, yeah, yeah. He said, I'll, I'll do all the things that you normally do. And so he's not, he is not a person who's afraid of trying to get anything going. And he said, I said to the, the guy, I said, oh, it's got a flat battery. He said, well, don't worry, we've got this jumper pack. Uh, well, okay. Well, I don't think there's any fuel in it. Well, we've got some fuel with us. So my friend had an answer to every question and every problem. And he called me up and he said, this guy just keeps throwing problems at us. I said, well, when I spoke to him yesterday, he said, the car was running today. And he said, he's told us it was running this morning. I said, oh, now it doesn't, now mysteriously it doesn't want to go. He said, yeah, he's trying to persuade us to push it onto the trailer. I said, I don't think so. No. Tell that gentleman that I am not proceeding with the sale. You've, you can't, can you? You'd be a no, fool. No, You'd be you a know, fool. I, I, no, I bought literally hundreds of them in Mustangs, 30, 40, 50, I can't remember so many. Wow. And I've had a few bad ones. But overall, you know, <laughs> I've done okay out of it. But uh, well, it's a hobby now. It's not a business anymore. Right. It's a hobby for Well, me. Like, like my pal says, you roll the dice, don't you? That's it for another episode of Steve's Speed Shop. Social media doesn't let us tell you about it. You need to spread the word about Speed Shop. Tell people how good it is, how entertaining it is, and how fantastic I am. See you back here next Wednesday. <laughs>